God, we thank you for your redemption in our lives, for the grace and forgiveness that you offer us. Um, We thank you for the body of Christ where impossible things become possible by your grace, through your power. We thank you for your enduring love and your faithfulness. We thank you that in the body of Christ we have a family that is transcendent in nature and inexplicable in the way that it loves. And we thank you that you restore us back to fellowship uh, when we go astray. And we thank you for, for Gabe and Connie that, that you have brought them back to our fellowship after everything that they have been through. Um, and God, we thank you for their courage to give us an example of what sincere, godly grief looks like. And Lord, we thank you for your word as we turn now to open up the scriptures. I pray that you would deepen our love for you, that you would sharpen our minds, that you would pierce through the hardness of our hearts to draw us deeper into fellowship with you. Lord, make this time as we spend it under the teaching of your word profitable for our growth and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I want you to open in your Bible with me to Nahum, the prophet of Nahum. Um, We're jumping back into this little series that we've been calling the Neglected Prophets. And we've crossed the halfway point. We're now in the seventh of 12 of the minor prophets. And we've been out of the, this subject. Uh, we, we weren't on it last Sunday. And so we're now two weeks removed from this series. And so I want to just make something clear that I'm not sure I've stated quite clearly enough uh, yet as we've been making our way through this. The minor prophets are pressing us toward an incredibly important conclusion to the Old Testament before the opening of the New Testament. Okay, the way our English Bible is ordered, the new or the the minor prophets are the final set of books before we transition into the New Testament. And the conclusion that they are pressing us towards is that humanity is in desperate need of a Savior. As you read the Minor Prophets, what you find is a deep and difficult study of the wrath of God towards human sin, coupled with this overwhelming optimism that the Lord is good, that God is powerful to overcome evil with grace, that he is compassionate and loving and long-suffering, full of forgiveness in addition to his wrath towards sin. And all the neglected prophets, they're written not only to declare judgment upon the nation of Israel for its waywardness and rebellion against God and 
judgment on these other nations of the world who are also rebellious against God, but, but they're also written to soften our hearts so that as we conclude the Old Testament and move into the New Testament, when the Savior finally shows up on the scene, our hearts have been rightly prepared to receive the Son of God. We're finally in tune with our brokenness and our neediness and ready to turn to Him looking for His grace and His favor for some hope in His message of redemption. And it's important that we understand that goal, what what we're pressing towards, what we're progressing towards. Because otherwise, I think that if you just read the Minor Prophets, without the hope of Christ coming in the New Testament, you're prone to fall into just despair and hopelessness. The sheer wickedness of man is too much. And so I want you to understand that the prophets are setting the stage for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. All of their writing is ultimately meant to point to him. Okay. Now, specifically Nahum could probably be retitled Jonah Part 2. Jonah Part 2. Nahum is writing about a hundred years after Jonah was written, and his book is another prophecy against the nation, or I'm sorry, the, the capital city of Nineveh, which is part of the nation of Assyria. And basically, Nahum is the concluding part of the story of what happens to Nineveh and what happens to the nation of Assyria that began in the book of Jonah. Remember, in Jonah, we see God's prophet declaring to Assyria, specifically Nineveh, the city, that unless they repent of their evil deeds and turn to him, that God will bring judgment upon that nation and upon that city for their sin and their rebellion. And in this wonderful turn of events in the book of Jonah, which actually rarely happens in the prophets, you see Nineveh actually respond to God's message of judgment, and they repent and they turn to him. But when we get to Nahum, which is Jonah part two, we we realize that only a short period of time passed before the nation of Assyria and the city of Nineveh fell back into wickedness and evil. And Assyria eventually grew in power in the Middle East such that it essentially conquered the entirety of that area and ruled with a harsh domination over the other nations that it had subdued. And so then Nahum pops on the scene. He's sent by God. He's a prophet of God. And he's sent to declare how the story of Nineveh and Assyria is going to end. And then, again, that's really what Nahum is. It's Jonah part two telling us how the city of Nineveh is eventually laid waste, which is God's judgment against this city for its sin. So Jonah and Nahum, they, all take place, uh, they both take place within about 150 years of each other. Jonah goes to Nineveh just as a refresher around 760 B.C. Nahum preaches around 650 B.C. And Nineveh, Assyria, is, uh, Nineveh specifically is is destroyed around 612 B.C. 
And in fact, pretty much all of chapter 2, if you read Nahum at some point over the last week or two, pretty much all of chapter 2 is just a really intense uh, recounting of what happens to the city of Nineveh as it is destroyed. And it is, again, intense. So just to summarize the book real quick, it's only three chapters. Chapter 1 is a declaration of God's wrath towards Nineveh because of sin. Chapter 2 is a recounting, and I'm saying recounting, actually Nahum was written before Nineveh was destroyed, but it is a foretelling then of what that day of destruction is going to look like for the city of Nineveh. And that then rolls over into chapter 3 where you get this pretty gruesome description of people stumbling over bodies laying in the street. And chapter 3 then combines sort of a more detailed description of of a final set of warnings for the city of Nineveh. What I want to do is read chapter 1 together. So if you want to follow along with me. It says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your people or name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Before we kind of get into the real meat of uh, Nahum here, I want to hit on a principle that we find when we tie together the book of Jonah and Nahum, something we see in the story of Nineveh as it appears in our Bible. And the principle is this. What we have done in the past 
is basically irrelevant in the future. And what we do right now has untold importance for our future. Let me say that again. That's a mouthful. And maybe you want to write this down. What we have done in the past is basically irrelevant in the present. And what we do right now has untold importance for our future. Let me unpack that a little bit. Someone who loves God can never say, I obeyed God faithfully in the past, and so right now I have earned the right to sin. Or to put it another way, someone who loves God can never say, because I did what was right before, I am now justified in doing what is wrong now. Look, we are in a massive war for our souls. I hope you realize that. And it's predominantly not taking place in this material sphere as you perceive it. It is occurring spiritually every single day. And every day we are in the process of becoming something. Do not kid yourself. The person that you will be 10 years from now is the person that you are in this moment progressing towards. If you're younger like me and you think, man, when I'm 50, I will just, by definition, be a better person. Go ask somebody 50 or older in this room whether that's how it works. You will not wake up 10 years from now a better person by continuing to make bad decisions in the present. And we don't perceive this taking place. You know, when I look at my kids, I don't see them physiologically changing because it happens so incrementally. I don't see them changing until I look at a picture of them five or ten years ago. Most of them didn't even exist ten years ago. Five years ago. And you see the changes that have occurred. But I don't see them getting bigger. I don't see them becoming adults. Little by little, though, they are becoming grown-ups. And in the same way, you need to understand, every single day, in a spiritual sense, you are becoming something. You are either becoming more alive as God transforms you to an ever greater degree into the image of Christ, or you are dying as you partner with sin and you live a life contrary to the teachings of Jesus. And in that process, you need to understand what you did yesterday, whether it was unbelievably, amazingly good or incredibly, awfully, awfully evil, What you did yesterday is actually of very little importance. Bring it to the Lord in humility, surrender it to Him, and then consider this moment. Because what you do in this moment is shaping who you will be in the next moment, and in five years, and in ten years, and in eternity. It is always this present moment that is of the greatest consequence in the life of the Christian. It's not what you did yesterday. 
The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Philippians 3. He says, Not that I have already obtained the resurrection or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward towards what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, is what Paul says. So with Nineveh, it looked like this. At one point, a prophet came to them and said, repent or you face destruction. And they repented, which was a good and praiseworthy thing. God relented of his intention to destroy them at that point in time. But then, in time, they went back to their way of sin, and they continued to choose sin, and eventually that produced destruction. And now in Nahum, we see that Nineveh finds no mercy from God for their prior good act of repentance. But the time has come now for them to face the consequences, and instead their present rejection of God leads them down this path of ruination. And so applying this principle to us then, I want you to understand, Jesus has called you to follow him, to walk with him. Not just to repent at that point when you responded in the past, not just to place your faith in him at one point in time, five or 10 or 20 years ago in your life, that is important, but he has called you from that point in time to actually follow him daily, taking up your cross, to actually obey him, to actually press on towards him out of love for him, to actually trust that what he commands you to do in this present moment is for your good, as difficult as it may be. And if we get in a pattern of refusing to obey him, thinking, well, I, I trusted in him 10 years ago, but now I'm going to get in this pattern of refusing to obey him, then I want you to understand you are ultimately becoming the kind of person who will ultimately refuse him. You are not progressing towards him. You are progressing away from him. And if you get in the pattern instead of trusting him in this little moment and in the next little moment and slowly by increments every moment, then you are becoming the kind of person who in the end will ultimately trust him. And in every moment, we're making a crucial decision to either follow Jesus or go our own way. And the choice to follow him matters right now. Not five years ago, not 10 years ago, not 20 years ago, right now. Now, I want you to understand, you can't in this moment even make a good choice to obey Jesus unless the power of God is at work inside of you to do that. But God gives us his grace to do that. And that's one definition of grace that I hope that you understand. God's grace in your life is the power to do what he wants you to do. 
when you would otherwise choose by nature of your own will to do what is contrary to God. Grace is God's power to do what he has asked you to do. And by this power, we are all being daily transformed into the image of Christ. So I want to steal a line from somebody who's smarter than me to try and make it simple. If you're struggling to be the kind of person that God wants you to be, maybe you keep thinking about this in terms of like 10 or 20 years or some massive issue in your life that you're having difficulty overcoming, I want to try and simplify it for you. If you're struggling to become the kind of person God wants you to be, then let me try and boil it down like this. Ready? I think it's this simple. Do the next right thing you know to do. That's what I heard somebody say recently, and I thought it was unbelievably profound. How do I move towards Jesus? Just little by little, do the next right thing that you know to do. In any given moment, whatever you know you should do, according to the word of God and the teachings of Jesus, do that. Actually do it. And by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you actually can do that. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, go back and read your Bible again because the Bible teaches that by the power of God, through the grace that is available to us, through the Spirit of God, we can actually do what Jesus commands us to do. And if you just take that one decision at a time, eventually what you're going to find is you are becoming more like the kind of person who does what Jesus would do. By the grace of God, you are moving into being the kind of person who actually freely chooses to do what Christ commands. You'll find that as you do the next right thing you know to do, the Spirit of God is working in you and working with you, and you gradually obey more and more. Surprise, surprise, why would we expect anything different? Let me simplify it even more. If you don't want to be an alcoholic, don't try to stop being an alcoholic. Instead, by the grace of God available to you, do the next right thing you know to do. Don't buy the alcohol. Don't pour the drink. If you don't want to be a gossip, don't try quitting gossiping. The next time you find yourself pressing into that temptation and the Holy Spirit convicts you of that sin, just do the next right thing you know to do and shut your mouth. If you don't want to be a pervert, don't try giving up pornography. Simply do the next right thing you know to do. And when the Spirit lays on you the conviction of sin, close the browser. Call a friend. Leave the house. If you don't want to be a slave to your credit card bill, then do the next right thing you know to do. And when you want to pull that plastic out of your pocket for that worthless piece of junk that will not satisfy your soul, don't do it. Put it back on the shelf. Close the browser. If you don't want a marriage that ends in ruin, then do the next right thing you know to do. When that argument presents itself, 
Just humble yourself before your spouse and love them in that moment. And then watch. Watch as God gives to you who are faithful with little an abundance of his Holy Spirit to conquer bigger and bigger temptations and trials. Watch as God gives you more of his resources to do what you could not do on your own. What you did in the past, it's basically irrelevant in the present. And if you're still stuck on it, take it to God. Whether it's pride at how awesome you are, bring it to him and ask him to humble you. Or whether it's shame at how cruddy you are, bring it to God and ask him to forgive you. It's basically irrelevant. But what you do right now in this present moment is of the utmost importance. Learn from Nineveh. Change your future by obeying God in this present moment. You are either becoming more like Jesus or you are becoming less like Jesus and more like death. And so in this moment, choose to be like Christ. Now let's look a little more closely at what Nahum says, because in this fight, we find some really wonderful encouragement here in chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7, right in the middle of this really intense rebuke of Nineveh, comes this beautiful line for the people of God. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Friends, I want to I hit this again. If you heard me say that it, when you go to do the next right thing you know that you should do, that you should do that in your own strength, you misunderstood. You misheard me because that's not what I said. I am not talking about doing any of this in your own strength or your own power. Let's just acknowledge what we all know from experience in the past. We are insufficiently powered to do these things in our own strength. What I'm talking about is doing this kind of thing by the goodness and grace of God, by His power, by His provision. Once again, the Apostle Paul is helpful in Philippians 2, he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And what I want you to understand is that since God is your biggest cheerleader in you doing the next right thing that you know you should do, because God is good, because God has given you his power to actually do that, because God has filled you with his spirit to make you walk in his ways, God can do this. He is your stronghold and your refuge, like this verse says. He's your source of power. He's your strength for obedience in this present moment to choose him. A stronghold is a place that you go to stand firm when you're being assaulted. Maybe the modern equivalent of it would be like a panic room in your house. You hit the button and the doors close and the shields come down and you are safe and secure. Nothing can phase you. 
God calls himself a stronghold because when we run to him, we find strength that we do not have on our own. He is a mighty fortress for our defense against the onslaught of temptation and sin and evil. God calls himself a stronghold because the walls of his will can withstand any pressure. They can stand up any tempta- under any temptation. Where we, in our own strength, the walls would crumble, God, our stronghold, will never fall. God calls himself a stronghold because he preserves us in his grace when otherwise we would be in ruin. It's God who has the sovereign power to make us stand firm, to preserve us from the onslaught of evil. He who holds the universe in its place is more than sufficient to uphold you. You are not a stronghold by yourself. You are weak. But your weakness is actually a beautiful thing if it drives you to Christ who is your stronghold. But as Nahum 1.7 tells us, God's not only a stronghold, he's also a refuge. And this might be a hope and encouragement to those of you who feel like you didn't run to the stronghold when you should have. Stronghold and refuge have many overlapping meanings in their word, I think. But a refuge adds to this idea that God is a place for you to go for retreat and for restoration. If you fail to run to God to be your stronghold in any given moment, the battle is not lost. Do not give up hope. Do not throw in the towel. Though we may have failed in this present moment and we feel defeated and we feel crushed, God has not abandoned us when we fail to run to him as a stronghold. Instead, He makes himself available as a refuge for us to run to. The place we can go to to have our wounds bound up. The place we can retreat to in order to have our failures be forgiven. The quiet place we can go to to find our broken hearts will be mended by his tenderness. Yes, run to God. Let him be your stronghold, this rock on which you stand. Let him give you his strength to do the next right thing that you know to do. But when you fail to run to him as a stronghold, then turn around and run to him as a refuge. And let him nurture you back to health. God loves to enrich the poor. God loves to comfort the mourner. God loves to feed those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He loves to heal the broken. He loves to bind up the wounded. He takes delight in that kind of thing. God loves to be a refuge to the weary, the discouraged, and the defeated. And God takes joy when his people declare, God is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And friends, I want you to understand, this is why Nahum rejoices. See, we could read Nahum and see that he is rejoicing over the destruction of Nineveh and misunderstand that what brings him joy is to see his enemies brought to ruin. 
But actually, that's not what Nahum is rejoicing over. Nahum is rejoicing that God is loving towards those who trust him. That is what causes his heart to well up with joy. It is God's victory that brings Nahum joy. It is not the destruction of Nineveh. God, in this book, has proven that he will vindicate those who take refuge in him. We have to understand that Nineveh was an enemy of Judah. And in Nahum, what we're seeing is God come to the rescue of his people. And as we read the Minor Prophets, we might be tempted to think, this is a God who loves to crush people. This is a God who takes great joy in just smiting those who are opposed to him. He takes a kind of sick pleasure in bringing ruin to the wicked. But if that's the conclusion that you come to, you've misunderstood. In Ezekiel 11.33, God tells us, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn back. Sorry, it says, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil way. And so the rejoicing and joy of Nahum, it is not in the ruin of Nineveh, but the salvation of Judah. God has proven to his people he will not be mocked. He's proven that the cries of his people will indeed be answered. God has shown that with a mighty hand he will overcome the obstacles and he will not let injustice prevail and he will not abandon his people, leaving them to their own devices. He will not leave them helpless. God who promises to be a stronghold and a refuge to his people proves himself to be faithful. And so Nahum delights in the victory of God. But I do want to point out to you what I think are the most devastating words in all of Scripture found right here in Nahum. I mean, if I had to ask you, what are the most devastating words in all of Scripture? I don't know what comes to mind, but I want to point this out to you. Nahum repeats it twice. God is a refuge to all who turn to him. He's a stronghold for all who trust in him. But Nineveh did not do that. And so they didn't get a message of hope and restoration. They didn't get a message of tenderness and kindness. Instead, they turned to God in this moment of worldly grief that led to a temporary repentance. But in time, they went right back to doing the evil that God had condemned them for, and it was only a matter of time before God would hold them accountable for that evil. And they hardened their heart towards God, and so God sends the prophet Nahum and says these words. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Look over at chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I don't know about you, but I cannot think of a more devastating phrase in all of Scripture. You know, if we're honest, life is hard enough with God as an ally. Think about how much more difficult it is with God when He is opposed to you. When I look at the destruction of Nineveh, I see that when God is against you, the outcome is nothing but an utter wasteland. 
even today, where they've found what they think are the ruins of Nineveh, it's essentially an uninhabited, a largely uninhabited place. I cannot think of a more devastating thing that might be said by the all-powerful Creator God than, behold, I am against you. I've heard it said that uh, if the federal government, the U.S. federal government brings a lawsuit against you, it's like one of the most devastating things in life because they have all of the resources essentially in the world to press you and press you and press you until you break, which is why federal prosecutors have something like a 98% conviction rate. But let me tell you, God against you is worse by far. I've heard it said that the worst physical illness you can experience is something like an autoimmune disease, like MS. Because in those diseases, the immune system built into your body, instead of working for you, actually works against you and begins to attack your own cells in an effort to destroy you. But let me tell you, God against you is worse by an infinite measure. And I've tried to draw this point out just again and again and again as we've made our way through the neglected prophets, that since God offers you kindness, forgiveness, grace, mercy, everyone who comes to him with a humble, broken heart will be swooped up and loved and cared for and forgiven. Then if God is against you, it is your own doing. Please hear this. God's choice to destroy Nineveh cannot be blamed on God. If you read this and you think God is harsh in the way that he deals with Nahum, please understand that that was, or I'm sorry, in the way he deals with Nineveh, please understand that was Nineveh's choice. God offered them such amazing grace when Jonah showed up that actually it made Jonah furious at how kind and patient and loving God was. Jonah pouts at the end of the book because he's mad at how kind and loving God is. God is gracious. Jonah declares, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You relent from disaster. God, that's why I didn't want to come here and tell these people about repentance. But in the end, we see Nineveh spurns the grace of God. Instead, they choose evil, and they bring destruction upon themselves. And the same is true for you. If God is against you, please understand, it's because you picked this fight, not him. It's only because when he offered you grace and the open arms of his love, by turning the other way, you essentially spit in his face. If God is against you, it's because he offered his beloved son to show the depth of his love for you. And your response to that was not to embrace him, but to nail him to a cross. God is a kind and gentle stronghold, a refuge to those who run to him, but he is a terror for those who stand against him. Nahum ends with these words, if you want to flip to chapter 319. 
There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. It's a strange old idiom for saying it's shameful and terrifying. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Clearly God is angry with Nineveh because they did evil to other nations, right? If you read this book and even it says here, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. God is angry at Nineveh for their evil towards other people. But the worst part is that their unceasing evil has come against even God himself. It was bad enough that they did it towards their fellow man, but infinitely more consequential that that evil was ultimately directed towards God who had given them grace and mercy and showed great patience to them in the days of Jonah. And their choice then is to spurn God, and because they do that, God declares, there will be no easing to your hurt. Now you know that we can't end on that note. I realize it's time for me to end, but we can't end on a low note like that. We have to end with rejoicing. And I think the good news is found in Chapter 1, verse 15. And this is a verse that's quoted in the New Testament. It says, Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. In the context of Nahum, the good news here is that The people of Judah have been saved from their great enemy, Nineveh, who has been oppressing them. You can sort of imagine this messenger coming over the hills to the people still living in Judah and in Jerusalem with this good news that the city of Nineveh has been destroyed. This great oppressor is now left powerless to continue oppressing. For several hundred years, the Assyrian nation had made the life of Israel difficult. And now finally, good news, they've been brought to ruin. For the people of God, their enemies have finally been vanquished. And that is the essence of the good news here in Nahum. Peace has come again to the people of God because their great war-mongering enemy, Assyria, has been dealt with. Well, once we get to the New Testament, once we get to Jesus, a fundamental shift takes place. That's really essential, I think, for us to understand how the Bible fits together. And I want to say it a couple of times because I really want you to understand this. The shift is that the Old Testament gives us a material picture of the kingdom of God, while the New Testament gives us a spiritual fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Let me say it again. In the Old Testament, we get a material picture of the kingdom of God to prepare us to grasp the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God in the New Testament. I am almost done, but I want to unpack this for like another minute, okay? Some of you are like, I don't even believe you anymore, Grady. (laughs) Let me just give you a couple quick examples of what I mean, because this is important. In the Old Testament, Israel's physical slavery in Egypt 
corresponds to our spiritual slavery in sin in the New Testament. The physical promised land that Israel enters into is meant to direct our attention to an eternal spiritual inheritance in heaven with God forever. The literal son of Abraham, that's Isaac, is meant to point us to the spiritual son of God, Jesus. The material blessings of the Old Testament now become the spiritual riches of life in Christ. The literal temple that we find in Jerusalem in the Old Testament corresponds to the temple of Christ's body, both his physical body raised from the dead and the body of his people. The kingdom of God is not a nation with a human leader like it was under King David. Now it is a spiritual reality that transcends human flesh. And these are just a few examples. I could go on. But the point to make this, the point to make is this. As Christians, our shared exaltation with Nahum is not the literal destruction of our enemies. I hope you understand this. Instead, it is the spiritual destruction of our greatest enemies, sin and death and evil. Christians are supposed to love their enemies whoever they may be. And so we begin to understand that since God loves people, we are supposed to love people. We don't rejoice over the destruction of the wicked any more than God does. We don't heap curses on our human enemies. Instead, we bless them and we love them and we serve them. The New Testament requires us to reframe the concept of enemy from what we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was literally Assyria, Babylon, Egypt. In the New Testament, our great enemies are instead sin and evil and the death that they result in. And so with Nahum, then, we can rejoice. We don't rejoice when our coworker, who's a real jerk, gets fired. No, we rejoice because the good news of the gospel is that our true enemy, sin and evil, has been defeated. Death is made impotent. And that's good news. Not only because when we die we will live forever, but because this eternal quality of life has begun now. We are already more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. We have peace, peace with God, peace in our hearts, peace with our fellow man. No matter what life may bring, we have peace. Not because a nation has been defeated, but because sin and death and evil will no longer be victorious. We are liberated from these oppressors, these harassers. Look at verse one, chapter 1, verse 13 real quick. It says, and now I will break his yoke from off you and burst your bonds apart. In the context of the good news of the gospel in the New Testament, we see that our bondage to sin and evil has been destroyed by God's grace. Paul says it like this in Romans 6.17, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. 
We're going to take communion now. We're going to do that by passing crackers and grape juice as we sing this next song. And if you're a Christian, then I encourage you to take the juice and take the cracker and just hold those while you sing this song. In a moment, uh, I'll come back up and we'll take those elements together. If you're not a Christian, if you have chosen not to follow Jesus, that's okay. You can just let the plate pass by. We would love for you to make that decision.